You're listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 2007 Frankfurt Avenue. For more information, check out circleofhope.net or join us in person on Sunday evenings at 5 and 7 p.m. So I bring, I bring love from the South Broad crew, and I want to kind of talk about um, what we're talking about at South Broad right now, which is what's so special about Jesus. When, when our design team leaders got together to plan this next season, um, we were noting all the ways. It was, it was right before the inauguration, and we were noting all the ways that people are increasingly divided up and labeled around us, even in our city. And um, we were also noting that Jesus doesn't seem to care about labels. You know, during his earthly ministry, he was always bringing different kinds of people together in the same room and getting criticized and in trouble for it, but he kept on doing that. And so we were thinking that that's something about Jesus that we want to we want to learn more about so that we can embody that kind of inclusion in this next era. And we realized that the broader question we were asking was, what's so special about Jesus? I mean, how did he change the world in such a profound way that we would want to be called the body of Christ now? And so we thought that exploring his distinctive ways might help us to answer some soul questions about ourselves, like, What's so special about us if, we're, if we are trying to be the embodiment of Jesus? What's so special about us as a circle of hope? And how can we make a difference in this complex world? And so we're using the Gospel of Luke to do that exploration this season because Luke was a Gentile believer in, in this Jewish world. And so he was, a, he was an outsider who was brought in, and so he has this great perspective on, on the uh, universality of Jesus, how Jesus is really for all people. And I think there's not much, you know, besides our need for food and water, there's not much that is for all people in this complex, labeled world. Um, so... When I think about labels and cliques and people divided up in different camps, it takes me right back to high school. Um, and at the risk of embarrassing myself, I'll tell you that I was part of the marching band in high school. And my mom texted me this picture. <laughs> this was not, I say embarrassing because this was not a cool thing to, to be in my hometown. It, you know, it wasn't the city. Um, it was cool to be a cheerleader. I think arts are a little more accepted in the city, but it was where I grew up. It was not the city. Um, it was like way out in the sticks, and it was cool to be a cheerleader, or a football player, but not a musician. Um, so it was a little bit suffering to be in the band, but I didn't really care. Um, I had done the cheerleader thing, and I liked, you know, besides getting thrown up in the air. I got to be that person, and that was fun. But besides that, I thought it was boring. No offense to anybody who liked it. I, think it, I do think it's a real sport. But I, I wasn't interested in dancing around and cheering for the football players. I had to embrace the fact that I loved music, and I loved creating it with all these um, brilliant so-called losers that were my friend friends. And so we kind of just embraced our social status together. 
People dividing themselves up into affinity groups according to preferences is nothing new in the world. That's why meetup is like so popular. And it's, you know, it's a normal thing, I think, especially in affluent cultures where, you know, we have all this free time to define ourselves in these different ways. Um, it's a normal sociological thing. Um, and people gravitate toward what is comfortable. But I think if we've learned anything from Dr. King, it's that we need spiritual answers to our social problems. And what we're seeing now is... Um, that's so much like how it was in Jesus' time, is how the powers that be divide people up and categorize them, mostly according to wealth and race in our country. Um, and then people are prone to react to this division by, ironically, you know, further subdividing ourselves. And um, suddenly everybody has to know their stance and take a side. And there's reason to mistrust and fear one, fear one another, um, or at least have a way to feel special and, and recognized in this political identity-shaped culture. So last week, uh, one of my worship leaders sent me this disturbing article of a, a teacher speaking out against the Black Lives Matter movement. And I thought it was a perfect example of how these battle lines are just being drawn now. And, and we saw you know, a lot worse this week. There's real evil to oppose, um, like standing with the immigrants and refugees at the airport today. But how do, we pro how do we do this? How do we protest without isolating and excluding and labeling people even more? How do we do the work of real inclusion in this endlessly divided culture? I think the political situation that Jesus was born into was actually really similar to ours, and people had these fascinating responses to this problem. They, too, uh, divided themselves up into groups to help themselves know where they stood and to feel special and have an identity. And I want to talk about three of those groups today, and I want to contrast them with Jesus who, at, who I think actually wasn't trying to be special. He was trying to do the opposite. He was trying to relate to all kinds of people in the midst of their struggle and look for, look for that open, hospitable heart that, that Martha was talking about. He was getting on everybody's turf and identifying with them, and that's why Luke often describes him as calling himself the son of man, which, which is like, could mean the average guy. He called himself the average guy. He was always bringing people together across these battle lines. And so what I'm noticing in Luke is that Jesus didn't join any of these other groups that I'm going to talk about today, and he, and, or, or any other group, really. Instead, he included people in the new thing that he was doing. And I hope that's what, I hope that's what we're trying to do as a circle of hope. Um, a good example of this is how he called Levi, the tax collector, who is on a decidedly unspiritual path. Um, and he called him, he called, Jesus called him into his own motley crew in this moment at this party. So can somebody read this to us nice and loud? After this. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. 
follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is, it, is it not the healthy who need a doctor? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Thanks, Eduardo. So in this scene, you see how Jesus is personally relating to Levi. He's not, he's not bothered by his nefarious business practices. He's getting right there in the mix with him in the middle of his business and calling him out of it. And if you, can, if you, if you know the story, you know, Jesus is a Jew, Levi is a Jew. And by being a tax collector, Levi's aligning himself with the oppressors, with the Roman government, and he's, he's betraying his own people. And um, it's evil. It's a way to have more power. But Jesus, Jesus gets in his zone, and he goes to this party where I think there was a lot of dirty money. Levi, I think the only way to kind of deal with the social isolation of betraying your own people, cheating your own people like this all the time and being a tax collector was to like comfort yourself with good food and drink and other nefarious company. And um, Jesus goes to this party where there's all this dirty money, which you know you could say is like every single party in the United States if you think about our financial dealings with the world. But Jesus isn't bothered by this company. He brings his own diverse crew into the gathering. And one of his crew was Simon the Zealot, who was um, you know, part of the resistance against the Roman oppressors. And so Simon would have wanted to like, kill everybody at this party, like literally. But Jesus you know, brings his crew to this party, and um, it's a wild mix. It's kind of a miracle to me that they were together, but this is what Jesus is doing, breaking down these walls. And so the devout religious people, the Pharisees, say, what are you do-? they're really confused. They say, what are you doing, Jesus, hanging out with these people who have no reverence, these unholy, godless people, they have no reverence for anybody but themselves. What are you doing? And then Jesus reveals his expansive inclusive vision that I think puts everyone in the world on the same level when he says it's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance and right there I think that's the unifying factor for the entire world Jesus names every human being right there everyone even though we're made in this glorious image of God we're affected by sin and we're invited to return home to our creator who saves us. And not everybody does that, of course, but Jesus was there to embody that invitation to everybody who would recognize their thirst. So repentance is something that everybody can do if we're willing. Jesus set out to establish this comprehensive way of life of reliance and dependence on God that would capture the imaginations of all the people of the world. 
You know, he had no, Jesus had no intention of working out a private righteousness with just a few people who would uh, withdraw from the mainstream and create these little self-sufficient enclaves of love and good works. That wasn't what he was trying to do. He had, he had his eyes on the whole thirsty world. You know, he, and he said to his disciples, go into all the world as he was leaving. And he used the word kingdom all the time because he had this really big idea. He's speaking in the largest and most comprehensive of terms. Forget about all the little groups. You know, this is what brings everybody together. Our need for God. And so I think that's why Jesus didn't join up exclusively with any of the other groups around him that were doing some good things. And I want to talk about them because I think their ways of getting good things done are still tempting um, because they're similar to many of the efforts toward change that we see around us today. Um, And it's tempting to want to be spiritually special, but I think Jesus was doing something different in being the average guy and trying to relate and work things out by the power of the Spirit. So let's start with the Pharisees, um, since we already mentioned them. This is a, the Pharisees are a group that I think don't get enough credit from Christians. I think we could compare them with the masses of people who try and follow good moral rules as religion. Um, so kind of like these devout kids. Um, and I think there's... Uh, I'm not just comparing the Pharisees to the Mormons. I think there's the thread of this in every world religion of trying to like follow all the rules and be good enough to make it to God on our own. But the Pharisees, I think they don't get enough credit because they really were, in Jesus' time, they really were holding the moral fiber of, uh, of society together for the Jewish people. Um, the Jewish people's lives, they, they were... Their simple God-fearing way of life was very much threatened by the hedonistic, pleasure-seeking Roman ways around them in Jesus' time. And so the Pharisees were these guys who were studying the scripture. They were trying to uphold the traditions of their ancestors. They were trying to keep it simple and sacrificial. You know, they weren't... Herod was building all these giant, fancy buildings around them, and they were instead trying to live this simple, God-fearing life. But in the end, all they really had was their rules and traditions. And Jesus kept confounding them with this great freedom he had in relating. He had this great freedom from the rules, yet he had this obvious holiness. And they couldn't figure it out. They, they were like, how could someone be so holy and and have such obvious authority from God, and yet sit among average people all the time. And we know it was because Jesus was fulfilling the old law, and he was instituting this new law of love. But the Pharisees couldn't figure it out. I think a major difference between the Pharisees and the way of the Pharisees and the way of Jesus was in the way that they related to people. The Pharisees really held themselves um, to, and others to empirical truth. We might compare it to science now. You know, they really liked com- controlled, measurable definitions based on what they thought God wanted and, and how they thought the world worked. 
On the other hand, Jesus was always speaking in stories and metaphors, like Jeremy Avellino. <laughs> and he was getting personal, and he was talking in ways that required this relational participation from people. And he was, his stories always allowed for these multiple meanings. You know, parables are so great because they allow for these multiple meanings of things that, that kind of get to the interconnectedness of all of creation. And so Jesus had all this freedom in relating based on his personal and intimate unity with God, which he now extends to us. The Pharisees didn't have that. They were always trying to measure up to their, to their definitions and their rules and their science. And they were trying to do it on their own, you know, not through humility and repentance. They were trying to be good, be really good. And I think a lot of my friends still operate out of this kind of guilt and pressure with God. They feel like they need to do good things for God to accept them. It's a tempting style, but it's not the way of Jesus. Last night at, at our love feast at South Broad, we heard a lot of great stories of people that were like getting free from that, needing to be good enough, and it was so encouraging. There was another group, moving on for the Pharisees, there was another group in Jesus' time that were reacting to the powers in their own special way. The Essenes um, were another God-fearing crew that was disgusted by the corruption in the temple, which was the church. And so they left the institutional church for this ascetic life in the desert. And I think we could compare them to all those around us who, who claim to be spiritual but not religious. And this is really the, the most quickly growing spiritual group of people in Philadelphia. Um, who claim to be, you know, the researchers call them nuns, which I think is a terrible label. But they claim no religion, but they, they like spirituality. Um, so you can picture, you can put your own substitute for church in the desert there. And there's, you know, plenty of good reasons to ditch the church as we know. And there was in Jesus' time, too, because the temple had gone the way of the Sadducees, which were this ruling class of religious leaders, um, very wealthy. If you remember that guy, Caiaphas, who was like, he was the high priest, and he had the main, he was like the, the final blow to Jesus. He ended up executing Jesus. Um, he was the top Sadducee very wealthy because he had made Judaism a business and, and kept getting in bed with the Roman officials to maintain this system. But we know how religion is often a cover-up for all kinds of sins. So the Essenes went out to the desert to get away from this corrupt high priest and all of the buying and selling and betrayal and greed that, and crime and sloppiness that religion had become. And they wanted to create the alternative system. These guys um, wanted to make a simple, focused, you know, morally pure, scripturally exact life in a remote place that lent itself to less temptation than the city. Um, I think they were all male and celibate, and they may have been the community that John the Baptist was actually raised in. 
but they left the church to create their own brand of better spirituality. They wanted to be the kind of people that the Messiah would actually come to because they didn't think that the Messiah would actually come to, you know, dirty, average, regular people with mixed up motives. But that's exactly what Jesus did, as you can see at Levi's house. And Jesus didn't leave the church either. If you remember, like he went into the temple all the time. He lived and worked there in the mess with the money-grabbing tax collectors. He didn't leave the church. You know, he prophesied judgment on the temple, but he didn't boycott it. Instead, what he did was get in the mess. And if you don't remember anything else I say tonight, I, I hope you remember this. Jesus didn't act like he was better than the church or anything else. He was not scrupulous about purity or ideology. He humbly got in there with enough sense of himself and his calling to make a difference there in the mess. And so I think any time anybody interprets Jesus' command to follow me as like an invitation to some kind of spiritually elite um, way of thinking, we totally miss what Jesus is doing. He isn't just gathering a group of, um, of the spiritually enlightened to be this exclusive self-contained sect in, in some remote place where they won't be contaminated or threatened or tempted. Instead, he's inviting the hurt and the diseased, the rejects, the losers, the ones who need him right here. And that's how Jesus keeps ending up with these groups of losers who become saints. Uh, like us, I might say. So, lastly, the, the, another, another group that Jesus included but didn't become were the zealots. They were the resistance, the political resistance to the inhumane Roman oppression and rule. There was a lot of evil to resist, as we see around us now. And the zealots were people who fought for the, the voiceless and the exploited, and they believed they had a mission from God. Um, and they were so brave, and they got organized and strategized, and they often died for the cause, and they really made a difference. Um, I think they ended up helping the Christians finally overthrow the Roman Empire several hundred years later. They were so crazy in a good way. Um, you could say, at one point, um, the story goes that uh, there was this Roman commander, Silva, that was like closing in on them. And 960 zealots committed suicide in the same moment because they didn't want to be to live under Roman rule for one more second. So that's how passionate they were for justice. And I think the main, even though they were doing all these good things, the main reason I think that Jesus didn't go with them all the way but instead included them in his cause was because the means to their ends often included violence. And it was violence of words and swords, which Jesus equates together. There's plenty of zealot spirits still, still around, and we can see it all over Facebook. 
um, with religious people using words or images or weapons even to fight back to the powers. And I get it. I think it's really tempting. Um, I mean, Donald Trump could push me over the edge and in any given moment. And Katniss is amazing. But we learn the way of violence, I think, from the moment we are born into this world. This, uh, this urge to take matters into our own hands to achieve a victory. And I think there's something good about that ambition, but, but the problem with the zealot strategy is that it interferes or manipulates, it manipulates or interferes with a free response to God, which we all need to come at. Force is never an attribute of God, I think, as we can see in the way of Jesus. Jesus demonstrated that. So, all these ways of being spiritually special. Um, the good person Pharisee, the disengaged Essene, or the freedom, fellow, freedom fighter zealot, they, they're all legitimate ways to respond to the powers and to, to get... Um, our own spiritual needs met. But I think what Jesus is doing is a little different. There's a reason he didn't join up with any of these groups, but instead called them into what he was doing, which was this deeply relational way of life in community. And I think this is what we're trying to work out here as a circle of hope. Jesus was doing this deeply relational way of life in community where people had to work out their unconsciously self-serving ideals and ideology in practical, personal ways. I think this is the way of Jesus and the way to our own ongoing conversion. And so Jesus consistently chose these small means, these small, everyday, average guy means to accomplish this great vision. Like one example of that is he... He basically lived and worked in these three tiny little towns, uh, Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida. And some people call it the Evangelical Triangle. But he didn't stay within those three little towns because he didn't like know where else to go. He did it on purpose, I think, because he was trying to um, call people into relationship. This network of souls in, in actual physical places of worship where people like knew each other's names and were accountable to each other, you know, an actual con- context to be saved, to learn how to love. Our, our cell groups are based on this model. And I think it's interesting how he mostly ignored Herod. You know, the 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 Roman government was doing crazy stuff all around him, and he so rarely gives it a nod, at least the way the gospel writers uh, record it. Instead, he, he mostly ignores them. He, he ignores the powers, but I, because I think he knew what he was doing in demonstrating love and teaching people how to love was eternally more powerful. And that's how the movement of incarnation takes root and, and actually changes the world. And I think we can see that sometimes among us. So just in closing, I propose that we um, institute a new word. You know, we, we love making up words at Circle of Hope. But uh, I think we should, we should institute this new word that Luke gives us a bunch of times um, 
in his companion book, the book of Acts, where he describes how this resurrection community gets started. He uses this word homothumidon, which um, means zealotry without violence. It means of one accord, of one mind together. It, it means same fire. And I think it, uh, it has this flavor of like the intensity and the energy of anger without the anger. I, could, I kind of felt it at our council meeting two weeks ago. We were talking about you know, our, our map and our goals and our budget even. There was that same fire in the room. I think people have a little touch of it at Sixers games now with Joel Embiid. I experience it a little bit at births in our community and with the kids. Um, but I really experience it with you fully as we build this circle of hope because it's a faith thing. It's, it's a by the power of the spirit kind of thing. And that's how we actually form this res resurrection community in our homes and our neighborhoods and our schools. And I think we open ourselves to homo thumidon through prayer. You know, much like Mary, Mary was really the average girl. If Jesus was the average guy, she was the average girl when she prayed, I'm your servant, Lord. May it be to me as you wish. She took on that identity as God's servant, you know, which I think is like the fruit of repentance. And she invited God's action in her. I think we can only pray our ways, uh, pray ourselves into following Jesus, really. It's not something for us to accomplish on our own. It's really the Spirit, it's opening ourselves up to the Spirit praying in us. The way that we actually follow is internalized and embodied by Jesus himself. Prayer is the only way we get to the following, I think, not just the feeling inside us. And it's not some formal, professional thing. You know, it's the street language that we use with Jesus who is on the street with us. It's like, it's like not something we have to wait till we're good at. It's like our cradle language, prayer just talking to God. The ironic thing is that the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots all attracted more followers than Jesus. And I just want to leave you with this little warning because I think it's still true. The Essenes, the, the people who are leaving the church, the, uh, the Pharisees, the people who are trying to be good enough, you know, follow a very strict, maybe even radical religion, to get to God, and then the zealots, the people who are fighting back with violence against the powers, all of these groups are more attractive than Jesus, and we can see this in the world. Um, Jesus, it's so ironic. Jesus is the most admired, most sort of worshipped character, um, but the least followed. I think because it's such a unique way of life. It's like nothing else. It's like... Um, anything but average, even though the average guy showed us the way. Following Jesus gets us little or nothing of what we commonly think we need or want or hope for. It really accomplishes nothing, usually on the world's agenda. But it takes us right out of the world's self-serving, self-destructive, 
agenda to a place, I think, where a lever can be inserted that turns the world upside down and inside out. And I don't know how that works. I don't really get it, but I know that God does it and that we're saved in it, and it keeps happening among us. So let me pray for us, and then I, do we have time for talk back, Martha? Okay, let's pray. Jesus, you are truly alive in us. But it is a complex world, just like the one that you lived in. And we don't always know how to respond. But we want to be includers. We want to love like you love. So I ask that you would keep saving us from the temptation to make ourselves good enough or... uh, the temptation to withdraw from one another, from the church, the temptation to fight back with violence. Help us, Lord, instead to fight by the power of your spirit and and give us the strength and the courage to stay in that battle. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected to a cell, you can find one under our Connect tab at circleofhope.net.